Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a lecture called Autodeeks and the Gospel of Matthew, given at Sojourn Midtown. Hey, thanks so much for coming. Can you hear me in the back okay? Or maybe you guys can probably come up closer on the sides if you want. Anyways, uh, thanks, Michael, for inviting me to be here for this. So I am the son of an artist. I'm married to an artist. I've begotten some artists. And I also happen to be a Mathean scholar. So tonight is a particularly happy confluence for me. And a dialogue with Michael when he told me about this series that we have. Uh, we decided to put this together this evening. I'm just so thankful that you've taken time out on a Friday night to come. So sitting here in 2020 in relative ease and stability, I think it's difficult for all of us to grasp how different the world was in 1920. Just think back. That was only 100 years ago, 1920, especially in Europe. It's difficult for us to feel how devastating the first 45 years of the 20th century were for Europe and then the impact that this had. So if you can imagine yourself about 100 years ago in the midst of this major change in human history that happens in the first half of the 20th century. Because at the turn of the 20th century, let's say imagine the year 1900, the world was flying high in the heady air of progress of science, Wissenschaft, the great scientific knowledge of everything. The modern university was thriving. Medicine was advancing rapidly. Chemistry and physics and mathematics all spawning incredible technologies, machines, and comforts like never before. Universities University education was leading people towards more stable governments. In 1900, there was a lot of religious progressivism, promising freedom from all from the morally stifling Christianity of the past. Darwin's evolutionary theory by 1900 was not just about the origin of species. It became an entire spirit of the age, a worldview that humanity was progressing and was going to arrive at this place of, of solving, solving war and solving disease and everything was going well. And much of that was driven by Germany producing some of the most brilliant minds and influential philosophers and theologians and chemists and scientists and educators. And then everything went crazy. Within 45 years from 1900 to 1945, the world became an entirely different place, darker, smaller, and more deadly. The world experienced the Spanish flu that infected 27% of the entire human population on the earth. There was Spanish flu in, in the Arctic and on remote Pacific islands. Between 40 and 50 million people died around 1918, maybe 100 million. We don't even know for sure. Many countries in the West, including the United States, experienced massive economic collapse with resulting hunger and rest, our Great Depression, and all over the world. And on top of all of that, the world experienced two massive wars that we appropriately call World War One and World War Two, where no country was unaffected. Entire countries went out of existence during that time period. New countries like Israel come into existence as a result of that. Entire cities are bombed into obliteration. Six million Jewish people, along with homosexuals and gypsies and other people that the Nazis called degenerates, were packed into ghettos and gas-chambered camps. And those are just the highlights of those 45 years. That's not even the stories of the countless individual lives. 
The point is that the first half of the 20th century changed and destroyed the world that people knew by in 1900. And, and as in every time, the culture and the arts, the creative souls created things, created music and dance and visual media that both reflect and affect all those things, all those changes that are happening. And one of the movements that comes out of right in the midst of that, say in the, between the world wars, in the midst of this chaos is called German expressionism. And all such terms like impressionism or Dadaism or surrealism, these terms you hear sometimes, they're, they're not necessarily prescribing a way that you had to make art, but there's something that we kind of look back and say there's a family resemblance in a whole group of artists and the things they're doing. And the German expressionists were a group of artists who experienced, they'd experienced the devastation, the disillusionment of World War One. They entered that first war as Germans with high-flying ideals of German heroism and notions of chivalry, even an adventure. But what they experienced instead was these great intellectual dances that they had been at the forefront of, of pushing became means of massive destruction and carnage like never before. The great advances in chemistry produced mustard gas. The great advances in physics enabled long-range destructive artillery. The great advances in technology produced machine guns. And so post-World War I Europe looked very different than 1900 Europe. The countrysides that had once been green and flowing with wheat and old forests were now replaced with burned cities and villages and gray landscapes that are scarred with trenches and barbed wire and dead bodies. And the cities of Europe were filled with maimed people with limbs missing and eyes and ears punctured and gone. Prostitution, venereal diseases, mental illness, nightmares, depression, much of what we call today PTSD were rampant throughout the cities of Europe. And the expressionists created art that expressed this. They used their art to show their hatred and disgust for the war and for the nationalist policies and the culture of materialism that had produced it. And they sought to show in all its gory reality that the world was ugly, sick, and mendacious. I forgot to turn this. Here's some little pictures of the changes from 1900 to 1945. And they wanted to hold up their art in the face of culture to say that this is what you've created, and this is what's wrong with the world. They wanted to show it that it was ugly and sick so that it would change. And they did. They often painted pictures and made drawings of piles of dead bodies and trenches and of of men and women. A lot of there's a lot of prostitution in this art in grotesque ways due to physical and mental afflictions, of countrysides and buildings destroyed. Of the German word that we don't have a word for, Lustmord, which is rape, murder, one word together. They painted a lot of these kind of pictures. Here's some examples of some German expressionism. And we can put a really clear time frame on this German expressionism. It happens right between the world wars because... When Hitler and his nationalist, his Nazi party, came to power in 1933, all of these artists were condemned as degenerate, as enemies of the state, as dangerous to rebuilding German culture to its formerly great status. And so like the Jewish people and other degenerates, they lost their jobs at universities and art schools, and they often had their works collected and destroyed. And one such person 
whose work we're here to learn from tonight, whose work you're seeing around the gallery, was Otto Dieks. And what I've just described was actually his story. He was trained as a printmaker and a designer. He was a machine gunner in World War I. There's a drawing he drew of himself during World War I on the lower left there. And he was greatly impacted by what he experienced. He described war as, quote, something so animal-like, hunger, lice, slime, these crazy sounds. War was something horrible, but nonetheless something powerful. And he was one of the leaders then in painting and drawing his feelings about German culture between the war. And as a result, he lost his teaching job in Dresden at the Art Academy there, again, identified by Hitler as a degenerate. And many of his works were confiscated. Um, he had two of his works were publicly burned in 1939 uh, as an, for, undermine, for attempting to undermine the German people's att attempt to defend itself. Imagine as an artist to have your works collected together and then burned publicly. And during the Second War, then, he was forced to join the Imperial Chamber of Fine Arts, which was not, which was Hitler's group, and he had to promise to only paint landscapes. And so he ended up in southern Germany painting landscapes instead of uh, the kind of things we're going to see tonight. He was eventually, at the end of the war, like most Germans who could walk, conscripted into the what's called the Volkssturm, the national militia that was everyone that people were forced into it at the end. And he was captured by the French troops rather than the Russians, which was always a better end for you. Now, after the war ended, although his personal religious beliefs are not clear, he dedicated most of the rest of his life, I think he died in 1969, to painting biblical themes. And he re returns then to a form of expressionism, and that's what you can see in these drawings tonight. In the late 1950s, a Berlin publisher was commissioning illustrations of biblical texts from famous contemporary artists and putting them into books. And in 1960, the, all these prints around here were actually, they're lithographs that were made in a book, these 33 prints based on the Gospel of Matthew. Dix considered the stories of the Bible, especially the gospel narratives, as, quote, parables of myself and of humankind that relate to our present just as much to our past and future. So he produced these powerful, often violent, moving expressionist drawings that retell the story of the Gospel of Matthew in a contemporary voice, which simultaneously make a statement both about the Gospel of Matthew and about 20th century German culture. That's what he was trying to do. And so before I point out a few things about them, and then we want to set you loose to look at them, just a brief word about that cool German word that was in my subtitle, Verkunstgeschichte. And as my Uncle Gene always said, a day's never wasted if you can use a German word. And so there you go. There's my, I got mine in today. This is a really important term in intellectual history that comes from the great philosopher Hans Georg Gadamer. And the idea of Verkunstgeschichte means the history of the effects of a text, in this case, Matthew. So in other words, the idea is, how did the great work of the Gospel of Matthew, how has it affected subsequent ideas and people and culture? So the work of Verkunstgeschichte is always multidirectional, where you're simultaneously analyzing both the original work, in this case, Matthew, and you're analyzing the later effects of the work, in this case, Dix's lithographs, to see how they mutually inform each other. That is, how Dix has interpreted Matthew and how Matthew has affected Dix. 
and how Dix is using Matthew to say something about his own time and culture and how Dix then helps us see certain things about Matthew because of his own situatedness. So it's always this multi-directional reality. And that's the work, the scholarly work of Verkun's Geschichte, which I've been able to be involved in. So now I've spent the last several weeks studying and reflecting on this collection of 33 prints. And it's really been a very meaningful experience for me. I can't be comprehensive in my comments tonight. I'm going to be very brief, partly because we can't get into Dix's mind. We don't know exactly what he was thinking and feeling about each of these images. He did give them titles in German, which I went through and translated all of them to make sure. Uh, and some of the, some of the uh, texts and titles here aren't actually, don't actually reflect the German. And I'll point that out, but he did give them titles and, and, and there are things in them that are very apparent that I'll point out to you. The most important thing is for you to look at the images yourself and interact with them. This is what art is. This is why we display art. I can't control and I don't want to control your experience of these powerful pictures, but I can serve briefly as a guide and point out a few ideas and themes and observations that might enrich your experience. That's what I hope to do. These are observations that come from me, having spent a fair amount of time looking at the prints closely and also as a student of Matthew for many years. So what I want to do is I'm just going to put them up here very briefly, the 33, and just make a couple of very brief comments about each of them quickly, and then we're just going to set you loose and encourage you to, to look at them more closely and hopefully what I've said will enrich some of your experience. <clears throat> so first, the sacrifice of Isaac coming from Genesis 22. It's very interesting that this is how Dix chooses to introduce the Gospel of Matthew. He doesn't start with Matthew 1. He starts with Genesis chapter 22, which is a very important text in Jewish history. It's called the Akedah, the almost sacrifice of of Isaac by Abraham. It's kind of interesting that from a New Testament perspective, this story, which is very important theologically, actually rarely, if ever, appears in the New Testament. It's kind of, it's got an odd thing that the earliest Christians didn't explicitly connect the story of Jesus with the sacrifice of Abraham or the sacrifice of Isaac as much as you think they would. But why would, why would Dick start here? Well, it's because the very first verse of Matthew identifies Jesus in two ways as the son of David and as the son of Abraham. That's very significant. I meaning Abraham and Isaac are referred to in the very first verse of Matthew. And it's also because the idea of Jesus dying a sacrificial death more than Isaac does, because you know, the story doesn't end up, he's spared at the end. Jesus is not spared. The death of the son, which becomes an important Jewish idea, is obviously at the center of each of the gospels and the culminating point of its plot. So it's very astute for Dix to begin his gospel of Matthew with this kind of elusive reference to Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Then he goes on into Matthew chapter 2, with a familiar story to us, the adoration of the Magi. Um, you can notice the similarity. In fact, one of the things I noticed, and you'll see in quite a few of the prints, is that there are often people in repose, often with their eyes closed. It's a very consistent theme through a lot of these. Um, and I think you see it here as well. Uh, you see with Isaac, his eyes are closed there, and he's in this repose. So too, the baby Jesus is almost an identical uh, posture there, as you can see. And you can also contrast Abraham 
um, with, with his position holding the knife with the magi in this picture, the leaning back versus leaning in. There's a long tradition in sacred art of painting this. This is one of a million versions of this in sacred art. That it's not a, as Protestants, it's probably not a story we think a lot about except for at Christmas. But in sacred art, this was a very, very important story, uh, one that's uh, depicted a lot in Dick's Fall of Suit there. Um, so too, maybe even less familiar to us is the story of the flight to Egypt, also from Matthew chapter 2. Again, there's a long sacred art tradition uh, in song and in uh, painting that, again, we we barely remember this story or its significance, but artists often see things that others forget, and I think he does here as well. And I, I was really struck by this one. Just It shows the weariness, and when you look at it more closely, it shows the weariness of Mary and Joseph. Mary is seated. Joseph is looking ahead, trying to figure out I mean, you think driving to Florida in a minivan with kids is difficult, which I've done many times. Try walking 430 miles from Bethlehem to Egypt uh, with a toddler. And this is what they did. And escaping, of course, they're fleeing, um, fleeing a potential death. Notice again, Jesus is in repose here, as you'll see many people are throughout these. The fourth, then, again, another story that we care not to think a lot about, but again, in sacred art is very dominant, um, and that is the slaughter of the innocents, the massacre from Herod the Great and his attempt from Matthew 2 to prevent the uh, baby Jesus who had been declared king um, by the Magi to prevent him from coming into adulthood, unsuccessfully, of course. Um, you cannot help but notice that the... Herod's soldiers here are wearing, and you'll see it maybe closer up, is wearing a German Nazi army cap. These were done in 1960, even though they reflect a style of art from the 20s and 30s. Um, they are the teens and 20s and 30s. They are done post-World War II, and so you're going to see a lot of explicit references, visual references to Nazi Germany in them, including in this. And, of course, you, you cannot help but reflect, and I'm sure he did as well, the tragic irony that you have Herod, this Gentile who is killing Jewish babies at the time of Jesus. And then, of course, these same kind of scenes that happen in the Holocaust, we know um, it's it's just a remarkable, tragic, ironic feel that you get when you consider uh, Dix's reappropriation of this story into the sort of German culture. And you can see, again, the repose and death of these children, again, this theme of them lying uh, prostrate in that sense. Then uh, you go on to the baptism of Jesus, jumping ahead to Matthew chapter 3, skips ahead about 25 or 30 years till Jesus is an adult, just as the Gospels do. And now we have the adult Jesus whose childhood was marked and shaped by all that suffering. In fact, that, that was one of the things that really struck me about spending a lot of time with these prints is that um, I think Dix's style brings out the incredible darkness and suffering that marked all of Jesus's life. And I think those first, those initial ones that are so dark, including the, the, the weariness and the, the dead babies, um, really highlights um, that that is the background to the story of Jesus. And I think his style really brings that out. This does mark a new beginning, of course, though, the image of water and the dove. You you should think of, of Noah and the ark and lots of stories of water being divided in the Old Testament. This is a mark of something new, and that's, in fact, what happens. Of course, then immediately, 
Dix picks up on Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus. And it's, um, you know, all of us who are post-Batman, it's hard not to think of the devil in this kind of Batman way here. But it's it's remarkable from an artistic perspective how um, dominant the darkness of the of the Satan figure here is. He's just completely engulfing Jesus. Yet it's also interesting that Jesus seems to be just dismissing him at the back of his hand. It's 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 really powerful. So there's a darkness to the whole thing, and that the center of the picture is Jesus, but then he, he himself is is consumed by this darkness. But he's also you know holding up his hand. And notice the a German skyscraper kind of city is representing Jerusalem as they will throughout. Um, so it seems like Jesus is tilting his head away from the satanic voice and really giving him a dismissive hand. It goes on then to Matthew chapter 4 and the calling of Peter and Andrew. I love the intimacy of this with Jesus, with his hand on Peter and Peter looking up at him. It just, it's a very, um, I was going to say precious moment. That would give the wrong in, in, implications. It's a very, it's a very intimate and gentle moment, uh, with Peter's, with Jesus's hand gently on Peter's shoulder. Then we get to the most famous portion of the Bible, the most quoted and studied text of the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. And there's, of course, a million versions of this in sacred art as well. I love how Dix has portrayed Jesus, um, you know, with in this sort of posture of blessing and gathering providing true life and this this sort of gentle and easy yoke that he's going to talk about later in chapter 11. Um, I think this is the only picture in the collection of Dix's portraits where Jesus has anything other than a very somber look. He's He has a smile here. Um, and do you notice that there's only one face that's turned down? This one here, you'll see all the others are looking up to Jesus but there's one face that is turned down, and this is the first time we're going to see Judas appear throughout these. So already in this, in the Sermon on the Mount, you have, which is, you know, some artistic freedom. There's no mention of that earlier, but you already see one person in there who, if you look closely at it, when you look at it, he almost has a double face. It's one of these kind of drawings where you could see the face in one or another way. My good friend Chris Vincent pointed that out to me. And, and so, but he's looking down, and I think that's, of course, foreshadowing what's going to happen throughout the story. Next is from Matthew 8, uh, the stilling of the storm. No disciples are depicted in this at all, but instead um, Jesus is powerful over the waves. Again, I think the violence of, of German expressionism is a per- particularly powerful here, showing Jesus as authoritative uh, over, this, uh, over this chaos. The tenth one, the healing of the demoniacs from Matthew 8. There are two demoniacs in Matthew's story, which is very typical of him. He often has doublets, we call them, two two people when there's one in some other stories. One of them seems to be depicting, if you look at it more closely, grief and the other insanity. And it's interesting to see Jesus' double-handed raised posture here. I think this is really striking, the way he's holding his hands up here. Once again, the specter of Hitler's Nazi rule, I think, is apparent. The Nazis, we usually think of their horrible behavior towards uh, the Jewish people, which they did, but they also demonized mentally ill people. Very, They basically cleansed Germany of anyone who was mentally ill um, of all sorts, things that we would treat in various ways. They were often uh, executed as well as they did with the Jews. And so I think Dix, who was very aware of this, of course, um, I think is painting a depiction of the contrast of Jesus who, rather than 
cursing and cleansing them cures them and, and cleanses them of demons rather than cleansing Germany of them. The 11th picture, the raising of Jairus's daughter from Matthew chapter 9. Again, I think the theme of the repose and people with their eyes closed and lying in repose. This very interesting that he chooses to capture the moment when she is just raising, being raised up. She's not yet awoken. It's interesting. I think that really highlights that she's been dead and that he, she's about to come alive. And if you look at Jesus' countenance, it is full of grief. Um, and this reflects a major Matthew theme of Jesus as compassionate. I'm not sure who those onlookers are in the Matthew story. It's only Peter, James, and John that are with him. Those are not the faces that represent Peter, James, and John and the others. So I'm not sure who they are, if they're maybe Jairus' parents or something. Number 12, um, the healing of the blind man. Again, notice the repose, the, the eyes closed, repose posture of the one being healed. Uh, in Matthew 9, 27 to 31, there are two blind men that Jesus calls, that are calling out to Jesus and he heals them. Only one is depicted here, but this does reflect Matthew's comment that Jesus healed the man by touching his eyes. So just the, the very intimacy of it, that he doesn't just heal them from a distance, but he touches his eyes and again emphasizes the suffering of the person and the intimacy and closeness of Jesus's compassion. Number 13 um, is actually wrongly labeled on here. Uh, the German actually says the woes coming upon the city. Uh, the, the thing that's there just says towns and villages and references Matthew 9. But I'm confident that what Otto Dix meant here was Matthew 11, 20 to 24. And if you look at these, it's showing these this, the cities are going to experience great tumult and chaos. This is a, a message of judgment. Number 14, then, in Matthew 12, Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah being given. And again, a very interesting choice from Dix. Instead of showing Jesus talking, he actually, just like he did with Abraham and Isaac, he actually paints the Old Testament picture here of Jonah being swallowed by a whale to represent Jesus' words about uh, foreshadowing, of course, Jesus' own death. That's what Jesus means by it, that he's going to enter into darkness and then come out on the other side in three days as the sign, right? The death or end of John the Baptist. So this is probably not a good choice to put on the invitation cards. And I think Michael made a good choice there uh, because it's uh, uh, rather mildly pornographic. Um, and so I'm preaching this text. All of the Sojourn preachers are actually preaching this text this Sunday. And uh, I decided not to start my sermon with this picture. Uh, it might be my last sermon at Sojourn. Um, but it is very striking. In fact, th this is very tame compared to most of the German expressionism where nudity is a major theme in a sort of degrading way. And that's why he's chosen it here. Um, notice that Herod, you know, the story is that Herod... Um, has it has a birthday party and his it's I don't even want to get into all the Herods and who they were it's very confusing I've got to deal with it on Sunday when I preach and that's enough but the Herod this Herod is has married his former sister-in-law and so his, her daughter Salome who is also so is now his stepdaughter and his niece right same in the same person dances for them almost certainly seductively I mean she doesn't have control over this she would have been used as a young girl for this purpose and and as a result Herod um 
promises up to half his kingdom, whatever, you know, in this drunken state. He says, I'll give you whatever you want. And so she goes out to her mother, Herodias, who hates John the Baptist and says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter, which is where we get the phrase, your head on a silver platter or something like that from this story. Herod's not happy about this. He realizes he was a fool in doing this. The Gospel of Mark tells us that he actually enjoyed hearing John. But nonetheless, this is what happens. So John the Baptist ends up, and this this scene is so striking. So striking, the degradation of the of the young girl, Herod's unhappiness, and of course the amazing grotesqueness of a man, a prophet's head on a platter. Much more tame, number 16, the five loaves and two fish, representing, of course, the feeding of 5,000 in Matthew 14, 13 to 21. Very pleasing. Doesn't feel as rough and violent or barbaric as the others. Um, and I think it really is a respite, a a rest, a provision of peace in the midst of a very violent and dark story overall, which is indeed what Jesus' feeding in the wilderness is. Number 17, the healing of the leper and the lame man. Again, the uh, probably the description there is not quite right. I think this comes from Matthew 15, 29 to 31. Um, the general statement there about Jesus healing all kinds of people here, Dix chooses to represent a man with leprosy and a man who has is lame. And again, Jesus is compassionately healing them. Again, retrospectively, it's difficult to not think of some of the film reels we've all seen of the moments when the Holocaust camps were liberated in 1944, late 44, early 45 more. Um, I, I, you know, you've probably seen those images too of people hobbling up to the soldiers in those moments. And I just cannot help but think of, of this scene. And um, I would imagine he was thinking of these pictures as well. Number 18, the transfiguration from Matthew 17. Jesus looks very ghost-like here, but the point is to make him, show him to be glowing and superhuman. You have two people with Jesus in the scene, Moses and Elijah. The old bald guy on the left is Elijah, and then Moses is the guy on the right, our right, holding the tablets. Very significant story in the Gospels, highlighting Jesus's authority and that how he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is what this means in the Bible. This is a very interesting one, number 19. Uh, this is a little story that most of you, if we read this to you, you'd probably say, is that even in the Bible? <laughs> because it's, it's a one you don't ever think of. But again, artists often remember things that we forget. This is the little story that's unique to Matthew about Peter and the coin in the fish's mouth, where uh, Jesus arrives in Capernaum and some people ask Peter whether he, his teacher pays the tax and Peter, classic Peter, he just says, yes, yeah, yeah, we pay the tax. And without consulting Jesus, he didn't know the answer. And so, so Peter, or Jesus says, okay, Peter, we'll tell you what we'll do. Go cast your line in the water, get out a fit, get a fish. And when you open your mouth, you'll find the, the payment for the tax. It's a, it's a very odd little story. It's very interesting that, uh, Otto Dix chooses to include this. I don't know why he did, but it's a very lovely, active image. I mean, the fish looks still alive in this moment. It's, it's again, a very sweet image, I think, relative to some of the others. Number 20, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is welcoming children into the kingdom of heaven. Notice the youthful, beardless Jesus here. Same serious expression. Only one child is looking up, and this is the peaceful child. Then getting near to the end. So then we 
Jesus enters Jerusalem, image number 21, of course, on Palm Sunday, which we're approaching. Passion Week begins, and the remainder of the prince, numbers 21 through 33, um, take up the rest of the last week of Jesus' life. Um, it's difficult to tell from this style of what the crowd's expression is. It looks to be like some of them are cheering him with a palm branch on the right, and some of them are opposing him on the left. And if that is indeed what's going, you'll have to look at it and see if that's how you interpret it. And that's exactly what happens in the actual story. Half the people, or some of the people, were very excited for Jesus to be coming there, probably the people that came with him, the Galileans. But the Jerusalemites were actually not happy that he was there because they were he was causing all this ruckus and he was an outsider. And I think Dix is representing that sort of mixed reception to Jesus in Jerusalem. Number 22, he skips ahead quite a bit to Matthew 25 to the story, the parable of the wise and foolish maidens. Uh, this is one of the three parables that Jesus's last major teaching in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 23 to 25. Uh, and he depicts, interestingly, the, the wise maidens who are prepared for the Lord um, as young girls, even in pigtails, you'll see as very young, innocent girls. And he depicts the foolish ones like sophisticated German ladies of the 1920s and 30s. I mean, that the, their haircuts, their dresses, their attitudes on their countenances are very uh, sophisticated. And, and this is the this is the contrast he's making here. I think it's in some ways it's um, it's a clearer contrast maybe than Matthew's text itself makes to depict them as sort of snooty and arrogant versus uh, humble and innocent like children. I think it's a very nice interpretation of that parable. Number 23, the Paschal Lamb. Uh, Matthew does not explicitly mention this, but this is the undercurrent, of course, of the Passover and Jesus' last supper with them, the idea that a lamb will be sacrificed or lambs will be sacrificed for the Passover. And, of course, it also harkens back to the very first story, the Abraham story that started the whole collection. And then you get to Jesus' last supper. I love this picture. I think Michael used this on the introduction or the invitation. Such a beautiful uh, picture. Rather than what happens in the Renaissance where the, you can think of Da Vinci's Last Supper or something, where they begin to, they typically uh, show the Last Supper in a sort of long table mode. This is what it would have been like in the ancient world, and some earlier painters tended to paint it this way more in the round. Notice again, one person looking down uh, here in anger, same Judas character, but you also have the other people's looks are quite bewildered. And, you know, this was a bewildering moment where Jesus says um, things that are shocking about his own death coming and, and Peter saying, I will never deny you all these sort of, this is a very shocking and sober moment, but notice again, uh, Judas's anger is at its height and he is of course about to betray Jesus. And then you get in number 25, uh, the satanic figure comes back um, in even more glory, as it were, again, filling the picture um, while Jesus is praying in desperation at the Garden of Gethsemane. Lots of agony here in Jesus's posture. Number 26, then the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Again, Jesus, uh, Dix's very violent style, I think, is appropriate for this very famous picture in sacred art. Judas, when you look at it yourself, you'll see uh, Judas's kiss is very intimate. It's not just as, I mean, it's, that's, it's a, it's a remarkably intimate sort of very whole lipped kiss. And then notice also that very clearly, um, the 
hats, the helmets of the Roman guards are exactly from World War II. That is the German style of helmet from World War II, and that's not an accident either. Then, as you may know, in Matthew 26, Peter denies he had just claimed at the Last Supper that even if everyone else denied Jesus, he would not. But Jesus foreknew that at the third crowing of the rooster, Peter would deny him, and sure enough, he did. Peter is right at the center of the picture. It's kind of hard to see. He's got a beard, and he's holding his hands on either side. You have to look at it closely. Uh, He looks quite a bit older than he did in the other, and it looks like there are tears streaming down his face in repentance. It's a very powerful picture. Then... The Another famous picture in the history of art, the Ecce Homo, the Behold the Man. A little different version in Matthew. This is in Matthew 27, 15 to 26. Again, a very common portrayal in sacred art when Pilate's soldiers presented Jesus to the crowds, mockingly dressing him as a king. In Matthew's version, we learn that Pilate's wife had a dream. And so Pilate was unwilling to be involved in this. She had a dream that that Pilate should have nothing to do with the condemnation of this man. So he washes his hands of it. Um, Matthew's account seems to be a little bit more private affair with just the battalion of Roman soldiers doing this. Dix presents it before a larger and mixed crowd, I think giving him the opportunity to pick the kind of people that would mock Jesus. If you look at it when you get a chance... Um, you have a very sophisticated uh, lady with a fancy hat with a feather on it. You've got a person that clearly looks like Hitler. He's got the Hitler mustache there. And then you have an old woman whose her tongue is wagging out at him. And then I don't know what this person on the right is doing, but it looks identical to the blind man that he had healed back in whatever it was, number 11 or something like that. I don't know. I mean, that part's not in Matthew, but it almost looks like this guy is coming to in a positive way while the others are all mocking him. I'm not sure what's going on there. Dix continues with the mocking theme, and this one's even more striking. That is clearly a Hitler figure, and then clearly also a very sophisticated woman who's wearing a kind of dress that was very uh, common for the wealthy people in the 1920s and 30s, and maybe even in the 40s for German uh, high culture. For me, I grew up on Rocky and Bullwinkle. So anybody else grew up on Rocky and Bullwinkle? And she looks like, I can't remember the name of the, the bad uh, wife in there. What was her name? Natasha. Natasha, right? Well, I guess that'd be Russian, not German. But she, that strikes me strikes me as that. But uh, very powerful. Jesus is very worn down physically. One of his eyes is so filled with blood that he cannot even see out of it. Oh, and no, this also struck me. If you notice the Hitler figure here, has one hand on the scepter that's been given to Jesus and one where he almost looks like he's wanting to touch the crown. And I, and I you know, again, we can't ask Otto Dix what he meant by this, but I, I take that as like Hitler is, you know, trying on and wants to be the king. And of course, you always have to remember, he, he modeled his empire and called it the third Reich, the Roman one being the first one, right? I mean, so there, there's, this is very intentional. I, I think this is a very powerful picture of both Jesus being mocked and also Hitler trying to take power for himself with one hand grasping the scepter and the other, the crown. Then you get Jesus carrying his cross, um, being beaten, it looks like, by like a slave master. Again, Jesus is incredible pain and agony here. And then what is certainly the focal point of the whole collection, Jesus' crucifixion, where his eyes are wide open and staring right into our souls, 
the centering of the picture, the darkness of it all around. Um, and here's what Dick said about this. He, he said that he wanted to show the physical suffering of the crucifixion and death rather than most sacred art of Jesus' death, he thought was too sentimentalizing, that it presented Jesus in some sort of pious look. And he said, that's not what death is like. And he had seen death, of course, Dick said. He said, as a quote, he's hung up there, he's put up there on the cross, looking like a ballet dance, pretty, and, and so he's saying the ones that he doesn't like, often pretty and polished, wonderfully anointed and pretty. And then you actually read the detailed description of the crucifixion, and it's something so horrible, so awful. How the limbs swell up, how the person can't breathe, how the face changes color, how he dies a horrible, utterly horrible death. Then he's portrayed up there as this wonderfully beautiful youth. Well, that's all fraud. If he was a great man, then he was in the most horrible pain. He was tortured so much, he collapsed and fell unconscious, having to carry the cross like he did. It was worse than it was in the way of the war. So he's very aware of his experience of suffering and human pain and really makes this the focal point of his collection. Two final ones, the angel at the tomb. Again, an interesting depiction to include where the guards uh so you don't see the, don't actually see the resurrection of Jesus instead you see the guards who are there to prevent Jesus from res- rising or escaping or being stolen his body they are in great despair falling backwards while this unperturbed angel just is rising and and makes them fall back in great fear showing the power of Jesus and then finally he ends where he should end the go therefore and make disciples of all peoples, what we call the great commission from Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Jesus looks very different here to me. I'm not sure why this is. He doesn't look like Jesus and the rest of them. He looks like a modern contemporary person still with the same somber expression, but I'm not sure what to make of that. If that's a recontextualization into sort of the current, if this is a call you shoot to should be going, I'm not sure uh, what he means by that, but it's an appropriate ending. So, Overall comments, very somber tone throughout. I asked myself as a theologian, what's the Christology? What is he depicting about Jesus? And I think he's mostly showing the story of Jesus as a story of suffering. Um, that Jesus is compassionate and he's doing his compassionate work in the midst of it, but that he is one who suffered most. Uh, from a Matthean scholar perspective, one obvious thing that's lacking in this collection is the emphasis that Matthew puts on Jesus as a teacher. Um, but that's okay. I think it's understandable in that Dix's interpretation of the Gospel of Matthew in these 33 lithographs is not about Jesus as a teacher, but as a compassionate sufferer, one who was mocked and misunderstood by the rulers of his day, as was Dix and the Jews of his own, of his own era, and yet was still at work in the world with compassion and love. So that's all I have to say. I appreciate your patience. Um, I would, encourage you, I'm sure Michael would as well, to just go around and experience these pieces yourself. I hope that what I've said might enrich it a little bit. Um, I don't, I guess we didn't talk, Michael, whether we want, what the format was. Did I, do we want to take any questions or do we want to just let them loose? Do you have an opinion? Okay. Great. So we're just going to let you loose. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.